Welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors, and if you want to know more about that company, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. Co-hosts today are Brad and Carrie Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle, and if you want to know more about their company, check out MuskieMayhemTackle.com. You're listening to Backlash Podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that by going to BacklashPodcast at gmail.com. That's the email address. You can also find Backlash Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, a few other places. If you want to find us socially, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook, and we have a YouTube channel. And maybe by the time you hear this podcast, we'll have a new video up on the aluminum boat mounting with the side imaging. I know Brad and Carrie sent it over, and as of Monday, it hasn't been uploaded yet because I was actually busy this weekend, but that's coming soon. Hopefully, it'll be up by the time you hear this podcast. If not, it'll be up shortly after that. Our guest today is going to be Mike Lazarus. And for people that don't know Mike, he maybe isn't like extremely super well-known within the muskie world, but if you're a muskie junkie, you definitely know the name, and for good reason. The guy is super passionate about muskies, catches tons of big fish, kind of low-key, so it was super awesome that we're going to be able to get him on tonight. And uh, I guess, Brad and Carrie, what's up in muskie mayhem tackle world? How are you guys doing today? We're doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having us again. We just released... Uh, I guess it'll be Wednesday when this comes out. Um, this past Saturday, we just released another video to our YouTube channel, so you can check that out. Every Thursday, we're continuing to release some of the old footage that we have through our videos that we did in the past. So check that out. You can also kind of keep in uh, line with uh, what's going on in Muskie Mayhem Tackle by going either to Facebook or Instagram. Love to hear from all of our customers, and we greatly appreciate them. Absolutely. And we certainly appreciate everybody right now. I know that the support that we've still gotten through everything in the last five, six weeks has been great. So, you know, from Team Rhino Outdoors and Muskie Mayhem Tackle, we can't thank you all enough for supporting us. It's unbelievable. We want to thank our listeners for listening to the podcast. People had good stuff to say about our last episode with me, Brad, and Carrie just rambling about boats. Fortunately, you don't have to listen to that this week. We got you know, we have a guest and a guest that's going to bring some solid information to the table. I'm certain of it. So, you know, we're going to we're going to go back on a couple of those weekend warrior type topics in the near future. But I think we have a few guests lined up for the upcoming weeks, don't we, Brad? I think we talked kicked around a few different ideas with different people. Yeah, for sure. We'll we'll have to discuss that after we record tonight. But uh, there's a bunch of different people that we're bringing to the table. And always like always, we're looking forward to that as well. So with that being said, is there anything, you got anything new going on? You guys still building baits and taking care of business over there? I was looking at Carrie here, waiting for her to answer, but she's being quiet again. We, we got some new stuff. We're just waiting for the weather to get warm and and then we'll go play. Got to do some R&D on it and, and then, you know, hopefully in the not so distant future, I'll, I'll actually have something new to talk about. Well, that'll be fun. Nothing like the uh, In Fisherman crappie special, nothing like that? Uh, that might come too, but it'd be bluegills, not crappies, Jeff. Don't, don't get me. I've thought about that. Yeah, don't kid yourself. It's probably getting to be about that time, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's, what is it? Late? It's late April, which is crazy to think. Guys in the southern Wisconsin zone, they're going to be out there musky fishing here in, what, two weeks? Wow, crazy. How fast the winter's gone it's hard to believe i mean it feels like time has kind of stood still over the last month and a half but 
you know, we'll just keep trucking along here. And as long as they're uh, going to continue to come pick up with uh, Speedy, UPS, and the Postal Service, FedEx, whatever it is, we're just going to keep trying to deliver bait. So, you know, it, it's a crazy time, that's for sure. And I'm looking forward to getting on the water. I mean, it's it's going to probably happen this weekend, actually. We've, we've not had ice for like two weeks now. So we need to get on the water and at least go explore some stuff. Yeah, well, I know every week that goes by, I keep thinking I'm going to be able to get around to this and getting around to that and all this other stuff. But, you know, business has still been pretty steady. So I'm really happy that, you know, like I said earlier, people are coming out and shopping with us at on our website. And we keep adding new products and we keep coming up with new stuff. And we had a bunch of things in the works. So, you know, as far as Team Rhino Outdoors is concerned, if you guys are looking for the latest in musky gear, check that out. I was hoping I'd be out playing around with some early season smallmouth bass stuff and i haven't had a chance to it i finally dug my boat out this week uh the lund anyways i dug that out so we're at least moving in the right direction i'm hoping (laughs) maybe one of these days i get around to it but every week the same story today's monday of course we're under the gun to get this podcast out on wednesday and you know sunday night i think melissa and i got in bed at i don't know 12 30 this morning something like that yeah yesterday was a, a pretty busy day in the shop and like typical, you know, we look at each other on Sunday night and we go, well, in this case it was Monday morning, but we go, man, I wish I had one more day with everything that we have done. Cause it's just, you know, it's just a rat race all the time. It's crazy We're, you know, and it's good. We're not complaining, but I, you know, I wanted to edit a YouTube video and that didn't happen. I wanted to get up the backlash podcast, YouTube video, and that didn't happen. I barely even had time to get around to adding new products to the website this weekend. So it's just been it's just busy, which is good. Like I said, I'm not complaining. I didn't get, I didn't even get a chance to go and take a walk with the kids or anything this weekend because we've been trying to get out of the house a little bit more. Hopefully, we get out fishing soon and things kind of return to normal. But you know, for tonight, we're gonna go talk to Mike and hopefully he's gonna give us a return to normal and just get us thinking about different ways we can approach chasing muskies this this uh, season. That sounds like a good game plan. I, one thing I should mention is that Carrie did list some new colored cowgirls. So that's something people could go check out as well on our website at muskymayhemtackle.com. Well, let's get after it. I think as long as you guys don't have anything uh, additional to talk about, let's, uh, let's go give Mike a call and see what he's got to say this week. Our guest tonight is Mike Lazarus. And Mike has a wealth of knowledge in the musky world. He's been fishing... And as we learned previous to us recording, roughly 30 years, he's dedicated his entire life to muskies. We just want to thank Mike for coming on tonight. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to this. I've had a lot of fun listening to your podcast and looking forward to talking to you guys. And we, like I said, I said earlier, we really do appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule. We know how important, you know, how busy you are and how much you have going on and you know, I think the what you can bring to our audience is unbelievable, and to, for us to have access to a guest like this is is really great. So, first time on the podcast, we're actually hoping this is you know a, a multi part series, depending upon how far how much time you have and how far you want to go with it. But uh, why don't you give the guys a background into your fishing knowledge and what you've been doing in the musky world? Because, like I said earlier, I mean, you pretty much dedicated your entire world to the musky. So, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Okay, basically, we'll start with where I live. Um, I live in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and I live on an island. And just to give you an idea, 
I mean, my population is four or five million for the island and surrounding areas. And basically, the waters that I grew up on and the waters I kissed were pretty much all of the St. Lawrence, all of the Ottawa, uh, all the way up to Georgian Bay and all the inland lakes around there. And what you have to understand is that this area that I'm talking about is it's giant. And I was lucky enough, I mean, all these years to have this time to fish all these waters and explore and explore and explore. Because in the early years of moxie fishing, it was all about pioneering, finding new water. And I was lucky enough to grow up in an area where people pretty much didn't know there were muskies. And it was a French province. There was no information. The average person here that fished, you know, didn't even have an idea that there were muskies here, except for the odd photo and a magazine every now and then. And they couldn't relate to an English magazine and read it and figure out what musky fishing really was. So I was fortunate, really fortunate, to grow up in the right place at the right time. Like any other devoted, Maki angler, and you know how this disease gets us. I mean, it gets in your veins and there's no stopping it. You know, when I realized what I had, I basically manipulated my life and, you know, my career and everything around me to put me in the situation that I can capitalize on, you know, doing what I love to do on some of the greatest water that ever was around as much as I can. And that's how I molded my career. That's good stuff, Mike. And I know that you, you spend a lot of time guiding as well. I mean, that, that's been a passion of yours as well. One of the things that's pretty unique about you, Mike, is, you know, for the most part, you're guiding, you have a great return clientele, if you will. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay. I'm very fortunate in the early years, like uh, late 80s, early 90s, when I started my guiding and going to university at the same time, I didn't have a lot of information. You know, I, I pretty much figured everybody caught big fish everywhere out there until I started, you know, speaking to the guys with the mail order catalogs. And the first guy I ever spoke to, funny enough, was not Rolly and Helen. It was this guy out of Indiana, Mark Zeke. I don't know if you guys were familiar with trophy fishing. Do you remember Mark Zeke? You guys remember that catalog at all? Don't make me feel that old, Brad. Tell me no, you remember I, it. I do remember it. So I remember, you know, I'd order some things from Mark Zeke because you couldn't get anything around here. And every now and then he'd say, hey, you know, because he saw my address and he knew it was like pretty much sending stuff to the moon. He'd never sent anything there before. He'd ask me what I catch every now and then. And, you know, I'd tell him and I, you know, I caught this today. I caught that today. And then finally, after about eight or 10 times speaking to him, he said, Hey, I don't believe a word you're saying. Send me a couple of pictures. So I sent him a picture for like two or three weeks of what I had caught. And then he sent me a musky zinc book from like, I think 91. And I think in that two or three weeks, I had beat their top 20 fish for the year from the year before. So, I mean, you know, it, it was then that I understood what I had. And it was Mark V telling me, hey, you should never speak to another musky fisherman again, you know, to protect yourself. And I got lucky and got my clientele through a company in Chicago called the Pan Angler that catered to big game hunters and big game fishing trips. So I was able to vet my clientele. And as the word got out a little bit, I mean, I managed to get some of the musky guys who were, you know, a little bit older, doctors, orthopods, dentists, and these guys pretty much took all my time, and I've pretty much had the same clientele. You know, if they haven't died, I've pretty much had the same clientele since the early 90s. I mean, the last opening I had was four or five years ago, a great guy, one of my favorite guys ever. You guys must know him, Charlie Thompson. He sold musky hunter to Starrett. He owned the lure company. You guys familiar with Charlie Thompson? Yep. 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 So, I mean, 
unfortunately he passed away four or five years ago. So I had four or five, I had four weeks that opened up that he had had for 18 or 19 years and my clients took them. So I'm very fortunate to have the same clientele all the time. And how that works for me is they all come on their own. I mean, they fly in here, nobody drops. They come, they stay near my house and they come for five, well, they used to come for seven days at a shot, but my wife put an end to that about 10 years ago. So now it's five or six days at a shot and they stay five minutes from my house. This way I can pick them up at the hotel and I can go east or I can go west or I can go north or I can go south or I can travel an hour or I can travel an hour and a half. So basically my career, the last 10 or 15 years because my guys are getting older, is more managing my water and managing my clients. So they're in good enough shape to fish the best times when I think I'm going to catch the fish. So my clients are as important to me as my boat, my arms, my tools, my lures. And these guys are part of my family. I mean, you know, imagine spending, you know, I have one client that fishes with me seven, eight weeks a year. There's some other guys are three, four weeks a year. This has been going on for, these guys are like, you know, they're an extension of my body. And I'm very fortunate to have that situation. One of the things that I really enjoyed with my years of guiding is having return clientele because, you know, honestly, they just become, they kind of become family. They're good friends, you know, and, and you look in your date book and you go, oh, I got so-and-so next week. And it's exciting. And it's actually, uh, it's one of them pieces of, of mind for you to, uh, to know that you're going to have so-and-so in the boat next week. I think it's really cool. Absolutely. You look forward to them coming and you look forward to this guy coming. And I, it, it's very fair to everybody because, I mean, you have the same numeric date every year. But as long as you have the same numeric date every year, you get the opposite moon phase. You get a full moon or a new moon once out of every two or four cycle. So it's fair for everybody, you know, and all my clients know each other. I mean, they see each other at the, you know, the musty shows, even though I don't go very often. I've gone a few times. They see each other. They know each other. They see each other as they're coming in here and going out there. They meet each other at the hotels and go have a dinner or a drink and all that. But because of the way my guiding is, you know, done, it's actually a lot easier for me in one aspect because, like I said, they're coming in for a week or five days, so it's usually pretty easy for me to get the job done. And, you know, if you're, if you're going to fish with me for a week, you're going to get a big fish every week. You know, you, I might have one or two weeks during the year where I don't get a big fish, but, I mean, that's probably going to be a weather issue more than anything. And then there'll be some weeks where you get more, but, I mean, you're coming back every year, so you're going to get your turn. And it's easy. They fly in. I provide them, you know, two sandwiches a day. They have you know, breakfast on the run while we're getting to the spot. And at night when I bring them back, they can go out and do whatever they want. But usually they're too broken because, I mean, you know how musky fishing is. And it works out great for them. I mean, there's no travel. And I'm in a location, honestly, where you don't want to drive because, I mean, it's not like you can put a boat in anywhere. It's not like it's not like going to, like, uh, Lake of the Woods or Andy Myers where you're going to put a boat in the water and leave it at dock for a week. That stuff doesn't exist around here. So, I mean, I'm very fortunate to have my clients. So your typical guide day, Mike, I mean, it sounds like you're on the run for breakfast. How, how are you choosing what part of the lake that you're going to go hit each day? Okay, so this is the, uh, where I'm the most fortunate. So basically, like I just said, all I'm really trying to do for the first, from the opener until October the 15th, I'm just guiding. I don't care about anything. I mean, this is the guiding part. My guys love it. I mean, I'm going to get my casting bites in. I'm going to get my surface bites in. I'm going to get my midsummer bites in. I'm going to get all my bites that happen, you know, 
after 60 degree water temp for three or four months. So this is just the fun part for everything like that. So all I'm trying to do now is manage my guys who are, you got to imagine that they've been fishing me this long. They're older guys. So I'm going to manage them so they can fish the best times in any during day. So for the most part, for the first four months, I'll never fish the same body of water for more than three or four hours. So it's very normal for me to use two, even three boat ramps in a day. It's very normal for me to bring my guys back to the hotel and sleep them for four hours and then go get them again. Because look, I'm all about statistics. I mean, when push comes to shove, it's all about me. I mean, I'm the only guy, you know, who catches, you know, a few hundred fish a year and never takes a cast and never reel one in. But I have my guys to work with. So I manage my guys. So they're in the best shape and they could fish if I have to both photo period. If I have to, I could watch my, my, my water is so big and because of the proximity to the Atlantic, I'm two and a half hours from salt water and you know, I'm not far from Lake Ontario. So my weather systems are tremendous. So I could plan my strategy based on the weather, uh, conditions and never putting too much pressure on my fish. Cause I could fish 20 or 30 different bodies of water, you know, whenever I want to. And, uh, so basically my, my whole day is based on managing the anglers and managing my water. I think one of the uniquenesses to what you're able to do is spend that, that time on the water in three to four hour chunks and keep those uh, fish fresh too. You know, that, that's a cool part. Absolutely. And I'm very fortunate because people don't understand. I mean, I have a choice of glass clear water. I have a choice of blue water. I have a choice of mud water. I have a choice of brown water. I mean, if you are intimate with your water, and I am because of history, I've been on it so long, I can catch the post-spawn bite on four different colors of water that'll happen at four different times because the temperature accelerates at different times and cools at different times. So I have four midsummer peaks. I have four post-spawn bites. I mean, when my water cools too quickly, I can go to water that's fed by Lake Ontario that cools too slowly. I mean, look, for 30 years, the first year I did my guiding, I wrote everything down religiously. I mean, body of water, baits, lures, line out, everything. And then I got smart. The next 28 years, the guy who, the clients that I had, they wrote in everything every day. I didn't want to have everything in my own handwriting. I have 29 years of absolute every day of what I've done, the weather, the spot, the bait, you know, for the trolling, I mean, you know, the line in, line out, the bait that I use, uh, the current, I mean, the weather. And I mean, when it comes to trolling, I'm very accurate. I use a reel called, it's called a pen 875 digital line counter. Have you ever heard of it? I know exactly. What talking about. I, I mean, I, my line goes on with a bogey reel. It calibrates the diameter of your line. So if I have a half a spool, a quarter spool, if I have 110 feet of line on the reel, when I let out 110 feet of line, it's 110 accurate all the time. So, I mean, I know my baits, I know my water, I know my current, I know my reels are deadly accurate all the time. So I'm in control of everything. And that, that, for me, that's always been the most important part of my guiding, managing my guys, managing my water, controlling everything. I mean, even like I said, I mean, I, I never fish with my guys casting. It took me four or five years before I realized I would not survive in this game 20 or 30 years. If I was casting, I mean, I've already had a couple of shoulder surgeries from casting and fly fishing and all kinds of other things that I knew if I wanted to survive, I didn't cast. So basically I'm on the front of the boat with the trolling motor all the time with a cable mount, which is direct because I mean, I don't know if you realize just 
how accurate the cable mount is. And I have a guy in the front with me and one guy in the back, sometimes two, you know, and I'm able to fish with the guy in the front perfectly with the GPS at my feet, a big 12 inch screen that's showing me every 50 inch icon that I've ever caught on it. And I have two my hands showing me last year's fish and where they're showing up this year. So, I mean, I am dead accurate with my trolling motor. I'm not distracted by the fact that I have to fish because I'm not fishing. And I could totally concentrate on the guy in front of me and never get hit. Because if you think about it, he's got a nine foot rod. I'm standing a foot away from him. How is he going to hit me with a lure? And I could watch his bait at all times. And because I'm looking downhill to the two guys in the back, I could watch all three baits perfectly all the time. Unless I have one guy casting out the other side. I'm not even in the game on that guy over there. But I mean, I am a control freak and I'm so dialed into being in control of the situation. And I'm so fortunate to have the clients that I have that it just makes everything a lot easier. You know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. I, I love it, Mike. I, you know, you can just hear your passion resonates throughout your whole talk there. Well, thank you. And you know what? Because I'm not distracted by the fishing, I'm not making the mistakes that a guy or a guide that would be fishing would make. I mean, I'm not going to put the guy too close to the fish. I'm not going to make it so they get a boat side. However, that'll still happen sometimes anyway. I'm so intimate with my spot. Like when I pull into a spot, I see it three-dimensionally. I visualize it. So, I mean, because of my icons, fresh, new, and the icons that I have that I keep, I mean, I tend to have less angular error in positioning the boat because I'm not fishing. So let's dive into that. Let's talk about boat control and let's let's hear your top one, three, five, whatever it might be, Mike, on what boat control means to you. Because in my humble opinion as well, weather plays number one, but boat control is right up in that top three for musky fishing. Yeah, well, I mean, boat control is the most important thing, bar none, hands down. When it comes to trolling, casting, anything you're doing, you want to have good control of your boat. The only time it gets sketchy, like you said, when you start getting into big winds, or I have tons of currents here, so wind against current is, you know, a bit of a pain in the for me. But I'll try, like, you got to remember, I'm just managing probability and statistics all the time. So I'm going to take weather and wind into consideration on where I'm going all the time. So I'm going to make it so I'm going to fish in the place where I have the best chance at the boat, best boat control, and I'm never going to fish anywhere where I don't have a shot of the 50-inch fish. When I pull into a spot, there's either a 50-inch fish there or there should be a 50-inch fish there or there have been 50-inch fish. Like, I believe when I pull into the spot, I'm fishing for big fish. I mean, I, I basically, that's what I do. I mean, I my clients know when I go for numbers and they call me out on it all the time. That's one of the bad things about having the same clients all the time. You never get to see the smiling face of getting a guy a new 50. I mean, that, that doesn't have, My guys know when I'm just trying to catch a fish to save a skunk or something like that, but I mean... My main focus is the boat control, and it's got to be boat control on a spot where I have a legitimate shot at a 50-inch fish. So, Mike, when you say yeah. that, how, how do you determine a spot is going to hold a, a big fish like that? Well, basically, I, I know the individual bodies of water that I fish. So I know where they're going to spawn. I know the first place they're going to gravitate to. I know where their home range is. Their home range is going to be a place where they can feed and live happily and have security in the summer and stay there, and the big fish will usually have the best spot in the general area. Don't forget I have that history. I have that GPS at my foot that shows me every 50-inch fish I ever caught, 
And believe it or not, unless there's too much pressure on them, they usually go back to the same places all the time. And there's a couple of factors here that you've got to keep in mind, okay? Like the early guys who fished Vermilion and the early guys who fished Malax, I had a giant stock fish population here. I learned to fish by fishing on tops of virgin fish. I mean, the fish taught me how to fish. I mean, the guys who showed up on Vermilion and the guys who showed up on Malax in the early years, and I believe you were there in the early years, Brad, but I mean, you know the deal. I mean, these fish were adult size. They'd never seen a bait before. And when you're taught to learn by virgin fish, I mean, it paints the whole picture for you. You know, the only thing that, you know, makes that collapse are two things. One, the end of the population, and two, pressure. You know, so, I mean, things play out the same. The hot bite here, the hot bite there, the hot bite this, the hot bite that. That's going to happen regardless. I mean, mill lack the last 10 days before it freezes, that's going to happen. Vermilion, when they show up on the rocks in July, that's going to happen. I mean, you know, opening season Vermilion, that open water bite where they're la-la-laing, tra-la-la-laing around with headlocks and all that, that's a bite. That's going to happen regardless. But, I mean, when you're one of the first few guys and you've had it all to yourself, I mean, you're getting you know, you're getting acknowledgement from the fish because you have them all to yourself. So, I mean, you might hear of now, you know, two or three guys on the last catching two or three giants amongst 60 boats. But you got to remember at one time, it was one guy catching all three, whether it was Hammer, Nick, or Thomas. I mean, in the beginning, there were two guys or four guys or, you know, five guys. I mean, with 60 or 70 boats out there, the information gets geared. But I mean, that's not what I have. I never fished with, I've never seen a body of water with like, 80 boats like on Green Bay, or I've never been to a place where you got to get on your spot at midnight with a flashlight because there's a boat coming. I mean, I don't know from that. I have, I'm not saying there's no fishermen here. I mean, there are places where there's fishermen here, but I mean, I'm the guy with the Ranger and the 250. If I see a guy fishing, I'm going to leave. That guy's got one day off, or, you know, or maybe it's another guide. I mean, you know, and these guys are fishing in aluminum boats with 90s and stuff like that. I mean, I'm going to let that guy go. I have so much water and so much options. And I'm, you know, when you get to a certain age, I mean, the politics and the fighting goes away, eh? That's basically how I calculate all that. I mean, when you get taught how to fish by virgin fish, and when I say virgin fish, I don't mean stock fisheries that, you know, showed up there with tons and tons. It didn't only go like that. In the early years, before Vermillion and Minnesota came into play, you don't realize that there was a select group of guys from, like, Pennsylvania, or I know of two or four guys from, like, Illinois or you know, a couple of guys from Ohio, a few guys from, from New York, every time I push the envelope and go 100 fir- miles further in Georgian Bay or, you know, 20 miles further up the French or to the Nip or to the Inland Lake, these guys who didn't, there was no Minnesota yet, these guys were always looking for the virgin fishery that had the giant fish because in, the, in, in, a, in a beautiful world, wild fish and virgin fish, I mean, they survived. And you can catch fish in July and August with 25, 26, 27-inch girths. Because these fish have never had their lives, you know, compromised by getting caught five times a year. I mean, you remember the early years of Milak? Do you remember those girths in the summer, Brad? No, it was incredible, Mike, and I totally agree with what you're saying. You know, when you have that that body of water, it's truly special, and I feel fortunate that I was able to experience some of that. Yeah, and the one thing in my life that I really dreaded was, you know, that I didn't capitalize on Milak because there was a lot of times in my head you know, I knew what Hammernick and Thomas and those guys were doing. And my clients were fishing with some of these guys, but I knew these guys weren't trolling. And they, they, I knew, you know, they weren't trolling that much late. And I knew there weren't a lot of guys in, but I was never so arrogant or naive 
to think that I could go there and outfish them. However, in the back of my head, I knew I could go there and probably crush them trolling. But I mean, how was I going to leave what I do? Plus, I have to justify my business and treat it like a business and make a living. And my clients all told me, and these are guys that you know, hey, bring your boat. We'll pay you. We'll pay your difference. Look, I had years where I had clients pay me five or six weeks a year to go fish Georgian Bay just to get them icons. I mean, my guys wanted me in Georgian Bay. I mean, I was lucky enough to fish eight or ten virgin fisheries that I know the fish had never seen a bait before in my life. And I mean, even Georgian Bay. I mean, the problem with Georgian Bay, they were the easiest fish in the world to catch. The problem up there was getting on top of one. But when you found them, I mean, all you had to do was put a fire tiger lure out or shoot something at them. Virgin fish react. You know what I'm saying? When you have fish that have never seen baits before, fisheries that have never been... I have some fisheries that I fished for 10 years and never got a follow. Now I get... Now four out of six fish I catch follow fish. I mean, surface baits, you know... I never saw a fish come to the boat for 10 years with his back out of the water or that stuff that you see on TV because virgin fish don't do that. Where wild fish is even better because wild fish survive and they don't do the same thing as stockfish. You can have a big fish and a 28-inch fish on the same spot because nature protects the species. But, I mean, they act the same way in the fact that they're, you know, not educated. So, Mike, well, kind of what you're saying then is boat control is number one, but uh, time on the water might be number two. And recording oh, time on the water? Yeah, I mean, you, anybody who fishes hard knows it's all about imitating and duplicating patterns. If you have something that's working... I mean, you got to imitate it and duplicate it. I mean, if you're going to push the envelope and look for new water, don't overlook the obvious. And, you know, it's boat control, imitating and duplicating patterns and just trying to be on the water as much as you can. So you know, one of the things that struck me in some of this that we've been talking about, Mike, you talked about blue water, you talked about brown water, you talked about all the different types of water that you have available. Talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, where are you deciding to go tomorrow because the water temps are, say, 55 degrees? I mean, are you going to that dirty water? Are you going to the clear water? When do you, How do you make those decisions? You just basically asked me the one nemesis question that I'm sure all musky fishermen have. No musky fisherman hates anything in the world more than 60 to 50. When that temperature is falling from 60 to 50, okay. we musky fishermen hate that. You know, yeah. unless it's a hard fall on the way down, or a quick rise on the way up. I mean, that's painful for us. But I'll give you another idea of how I'll play watercolor into it. I have water over here that I could fish legally January, February, and March that's being fed by Lake Ontario that won't freeze. But I also have brown water here that'll freeze the first week in November. This is what happens. I mean, relax. I mean, you get to that first week or whatever, or vanillion that first week. If it's minus 20 and no wind for four days, you guys are done, correct? Right. I mean, the di difference over here is I have water that's fed by Lake Ontario. Lake Ontario doesn't go from 50 degrees to 30 degrees. In fact, I don't think, I, I've seen some of my water freeze at 44 degrees, where most of it, you know, can freeze at 32 degrees. I'm basically using the color of the water as a buffer to help me put the best chance together to get a fish to bite, to make it easier for me on basically pulling my conditions whether they're good or bad. When things are good, I don't, when I'm consistent, what I'll do is I'll just keep doing the same thing over, but never fish the same body of water twice in the same day. You know, when I have the problems, that's where the watercolor becomes my buffer. I mean, I could do 60 to 50 on one color of water and my other water is still 65 degrees. You know, I could, I could fish 
cold water, I mean, have you ever seen your sonar say 30 degrees or 31 degrees? You've probably I never have. seen that because that would be frozen to you. I have only because I broke, broke ice to get there, you know? Yeah. And usually what happens is you're trailering the boat and the transducer is frozen and it takes time for the transducer to warm up. But I could fish in 30 to 32 degree water temperature on a few different bodies of water here for four or five weeks in a row in November and December and January. Imagine that. It doesn't freeze because of current. Yeah, that, that's unbelievable. So, and is yeah. that a temp that you, that you enjoy fishing? When I retire, I will never give up November, December, ever. Interesting. I mean, I... It is the most. It's all fun and games till October the fifteenth. That's when the big kahuna comes out. I mean, it's pretty much all practice till October the fifteenth. It's just about making my guys happy, having a good time, catching some good fish, get some good bites going, some good surface bites, good bucktail bites, good pounder bites, some crazy trolling bites. You know, I mean, but I mean, let's face it, October the fifteenth. But that's when the war starts. No, I, I can't argue that. It's it's interesting that you say that and. I'm going to assume once you get to that point, you're pretty much trolling then at that point, Mike. Absolutely not. I, I cast hard in October. I cast hard in November. I mean, when it gets to the point where it's below zero all day, I probably won't cast anymore at all. But I mean, that's when I'm trolling a hundred percent. And uh, that's when I'm getting my biggest fish of the year. And I had great bites that happened in November and December. And, you know, trolling comes into a whole different spectrum there i mean baits change fish locations change and people don't realize that a fish in you know 35 degree water temp or 40 degree water temp that fish has to eat once every two weeks i mean that fish doesn't have to eat every day i mean the big feed happens you know 50 to 40 on the fall there that's when they put on the weight but once you start getting in that 40 to 30s i mean a fish could eat a walleye and digest it in 10 days what people don't understand though is you can still play on the muskie's aggressive behavior and even though the fish aren't feeding they're still making a move here and there, whether it's going to a spawning area or moving between photo periods from deep to non-deep. And when they move, you can still play on their aggressive behavior. So if you're on your aid game and you know where there's populations of fish in front of spawning areas, you can get pretty good bites going, you know, where, you know, under good conditions, you know, you get four or five, six bites a day. And under the tougher times, you get a bite or two. And sometimes your day is two or three hours or four hours. If it's minus 18, I'm bringing eight rods. My whole day is three or four hours, but I'm getting the job done because I know when it's going to happen. That's super interesting. So, Mike, I'm going to take a couple steps back. Okay. You said don't overlook the obvious. I, I have a feeling that there's plenty of guys right now with all the the fancy electronics and all the – that they're they're sometimes putting in – too much thought in actually what they're doing. What do you mean by don't overlook the obvious? When I was talking about don't overlook the obvious, I meant more like if you're going to a new place for the first time. I mean, for the early pioneer guys, I mean, when you went to a new body of water, I mean, a lot of guys complicated things. I mean, first thing you do is you don't overlook the obvious. You go to your mid-light shoals. You go to look for your weed. You don't overlook the things that are in your face. And I believe the same thing with electronics and stuff like that too. And, and your presentations. I mean, don't overcomplicate it. Do the things you know you're good at and duplicate it no matter where you are. I mean, the world has changed now. It's not a, I'm going here, let's see what this has. The world is now a, let's get on the internet 
see what St. Clair is doing, see what St. Lawrence is doing, seeing what Minnesota is doing, and then put your boat in the water, doing a drive-by, and hit the waypoint. You know, the guys who are who excel at what they do are the guys who have the time on the water. There's a lot of great anglers out there. I mean, I know Hammernick a little bit. I know Luke. I mean, I don't know Hoyer. I mean, I know Quintano. I mean, these guys are good because they're just so dialed and focused and they have history. And a lot of these guys saw the birth of some fisheries. And so, basically, when I'm talking to the new guy, like the question you just asked me, Terry, you can't overlook the obvious. You play on what you know you've done as an angler already, and you don't overlook the obvious on the body of water you're fishing, the things that are right in your face and flashing. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Good. So, Mike, the one thing that I think that a lot of people, especially me, didn't know about you is how much time you spend casting and how much time you spend trolling. Because you said you spend about 75% of your time casting, which is what I would have thought it would have been about 75% trolling. Do you want to talk, though, a little bit about what forces you to do, you know, one, like what's a sign you're looking for that's going to make you go from casting to trolling? You know, there's some guys that struggle with deciding what, you know, what tactic they're going to use, or do you kind of go you know, go about it during the day and see, you know, see what's going to, you know, are you kind of looking at like what's presented to you that day? Or do you kind of have a really good idea? Like this time of the season is a really good trolling bite. And this time of the season is a really good casting bite based off of experience. Basically in the early years when my fish were really dumb and there were tons of them because I had the soft fisheries like Minnesota had, but my, my fish are all grown up and I've lost a lot of my population. I had crazy trolling bites. So I could troll in the summer and I could troll in the fall and I can get numbers. I can, uh, in the year, like from 95 till about 2010, I caught twice as many fish as I have the last 10 years. But that's because I had such crazy trolling bites because of the numbers and trolling was so much more efficient. The thing that changed now, which brought me more to casting, I, I won't troll right now, June, July, August anymore, unless I really have to, because, I'm more in touch with my fishery casting. I know where the big fish are more often because of what I'm seeing. I'll tend to catch a few more fish trolling, but I'll tend to be more on my big fish casting. And I'm trying to make it so I'm only fishing for big fish. So basically the change in the population and the change in the fisheries, my fisheries have changed a lot also, whether it be from you know erosion, zebra mussels, gobies and all that, where I'm more in control of the size of the fish by casting. I know where my big fish are whether they're deep or shallow, I know where my, I know what my big fish are doing more casting than trolling and big fish trolling tend to be a little bit more smarter than they are casting. At least casting though, make them a think and show. Does that make sense to you? It does. So let's talk a little bit about that trolling aspect before we, you know, I'm sure we'll hit back on some casting stuff too, but over the course of the podcast, you realize how the difference in speed you're talking, seems like the guys on the East are always going really fast and us Midwest guys, we tend to run a little bit slower. Do you want to shed some light yeah. on speed? I mean, speed, I'm all over the board. In, in the years of my crazy trolling bites, I never trolled slower than five, and I pretty much averaged out at five, eight, you know, five, seven, five, eight. I mean, basically, I started five. If I got bit, I'd crank it up. If I kept getting bit, I'd crank it up. If I didn't get bit, you know, I'd keep it at that four, eight, five, just to go with the probability of statistics of covering water, because I knew if I wasn't getting bit, it was because the fish weren't going because I knew my fish were there already. So I always erred on the side of speed. But I mean, you got to take speed with a grain of salt and you got to take speed with your boat, uh, with your bait. So, I mean, a lot of these bites I was talking about were all 60 degree bites 
or warmer. So, I mean, when you have accelerated water temperatures, you're going to want to go fast. I mean, if you're not catching them, even at fast speed, slowing down usually won't help you that much. However, it could. It can get you out of a bind. But, I mean, they keep going fast will average out with the amount of water that you're covering. But you got to remember also, I mean, you know, we're talking all different speeds. I spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours trolling a half a mile to one and a half miles an hour. And I know nobody in the muskie business does that at all. In fact, some of my biggest fish ever were caught at between one and one and a half miles an hour. I mean, big fish are lazy. Big fish are smart. I mean, and there's a certain time of the year where, you know, whether you're playing with current or you're using wire and all that, and these fish are really not active, they're not feeding, you could really play on them with the slow speeds and get them to bite even when there's, you know, no active feeding going on for weeks at a time. So, I mean, you know, when it came to the regular stuff that your guys are talking about, I always... You know, I was, I was always a speed guy. I mean, when I'd start to lose my bite, you know, when that, when that water temperature would go from 65 to like 55, I'd shoot in some 3.6 to 3.8 and stuff like that. But I'd go with the law of averages and try and cover more water. So it sounds like to me, like a lot of the guys in the Midwest, whether it be Wisconsin and Minnesota, I think the Illinois guys travel, they, they play with speed a little bit more, but I think we're missing the boat. And that's something that I've seen as a common theme as we talk to more and more guests. I think that we're missing the boat by not trying it. Because for us, it seems like if we hit three and a half to four miles an hour, we're ready to dial it back. Whereas it sounds like you, you're, you're never almost never under four miles an hour. Like you said, there's the time where you talked about your bite from one to one and a half, but it sounds like for the majority of the time when you're trolling, you're going to be above, above that four, that four mile an hour mark. Absolutely. Look, I'm breaking 10 to 12 down east this year. Think about that for a second. You know what a down easter is? Oh yeah. Yeah. We had a conversation with him with Tony Spicker. It's those, it's the metal like clamp style ones that almost nothing. Well, I wouldn't say almost nothing can break, but they're, they're uh, pretty, pretty bulletproof. Yeah. Tony's a great guy. I know Tony well. Great lure maker. Likes to move around a little bit. Good boy there. Yeah. Nope. I, I definitely like to play with speed and I'd like to play with distances. I mean, I, I love baits. I mean, you got, you got to do what you're comfortable with and go with the law of averages. One thing I'll tell you about Wisconsin, though. The day they made it legal for you guys to troll, I would have hit every lake that had never been trolled when it hit its midsummer peak at four and a half to five mile an hour just for a week or two. I'm sure you would have had great success and probably caught a couple of really big ones. In fact, I have some clients and I know some other guides who went on that quick trolling thing and they were getting with speed and stuff like that. Well, I, I was just going to add in there. The odd thing about that, Mike, is I think that'd be, you know, it'd be a good thing too. But the mentality around here is almost like trolling is cheating and guys don't want to spend a lot of time trolling. Certainly there are the guys that do want to, but I would say the majority of the angler, anglers in Wisconsin are definitely not taking advantage of the trolling rule. I totally understand that and I'm sympathetic to it. I mean, if I, if I had a client in my earlier that said he wasn't going to let me troll, I would have basically said, you're not coming. I mean, you know. We're going to do what we, you know, uh, look, everybody's guilty of, you know, everybody makes a mistake here and there and all that. But I mean, you're not going to tell the fish what he has to eat, what speed he's going to eat it at, and when he's going to eat it. I mean, the fish is always going to tell us. You have to be three-dimensional as an angler. You have to be a troller. You've got to be a caster. You've got to troll fast, troll slow, everything in between. You have to know your baits. I mean, there are guys out there that shoot nothing but pounders. And, and these guys are great anglers, but I mean, if you're not in tune with your fish and you're not in tune with your fishery three-dimensionally and you're not a bit of a smallmouth fisherman, a bit of a crappy fisherman, a bit of a walleye fisherman, 
I mean, there isn't any bite near me that I've ever let get by. I mean, I'm two hours from Quinty. I fish the best walleye bite in the world. I'm right by Lake Ontario. I fish the Great Lake Smallmouth, the Great Lake Salmon. I'm a fishing junkie. And all this helped me with my musky fishing. I mean, knowing the bait, knowing the minnows, I mean, knowing the birds, I mean, you got to be three-dimensional. If you want to be at the height of your game, I mean, if you want to be the apex musky predator, guide, fisherman, angler, I mean, you got to do it all. I mean, you have to, and you have to be aware of what's happening around you. I'm very fortunate. I mean, not only, I don't share information with guys. I, there's only a few around here and we're spread out so far. I share very little information with other than a couple of locals that I mean I say we work well together but they don't have the time that I have but I'm in touch with all the duck hunters I mean minnows are live baits illegal in Quebec the last few years and you know but I used you know all the bait guys used to collect bait to sell I mean they'd call me because I knew what was going on and they'd help keep my ramps open I mean I was aware of what was going on with my environment that made me a better angler you got to be aware of everything well, Brad, I know the one thing I'm getting out of this podcast is passion. You can't find a more passionate guy about musky fishing than Mike. That's for sure. It's unbelievable. So, I mean, again, I know I'll say it at the end, but I thank you for coming out because I love hearing this stuff. I love hearing the passion, the stories, the big fish, everything about it is just great. So yeah, I'm yeah. very, very fortunate. You know what I got out of that, Jeff? I'm going too slow. That's what I'm getting out of that. I better, no, I better play, I play it around a little bit. He's waiting for the bluegill. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I got out of that meat fish and bluegills is still a benefit. Oh, I'm, a that's hard crab I'm a diehard crab and on the ice and in my boat. And I got to tell you, there's like one or two times where the bluegills invade my crappy area. And you can't walk away from a good bluegill bite, that's for sure. Exactly. You paid him to say this. <laughs> you I had to not, have. Well, no. <laughs> Guy, that's and I, I got to tell you that. Other than my Ranger, my favorite boat's my 21-foot jet boat in British Columbia on the Skeena River. Oh, that's I love not jet boats. <laughs> that's not helped me at all either. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right, so let's, let's go back to topics. Okay, when you're when you're trolling fast, slow, everything in between, what kind of baits do you like to use, Mike? So for the summer, I had a whole bunch of different things that I did. Uh, because I have so many different waters, I had fisheries that were shallow, fisheries that were weedy, fisheries that were break lines and fisheries that were dictated by current. So, I mean, for the weed flats, I mean, spinner baits and short line plugs, uh, pikeys and stuff like that. I mean, they were my meat and potatoes, you know, all through the mid nineties up until about 2005, I caught hundreds and hundreds, you know, hundreds of fish on spinner baits and short line cranks. I probably caught, if I had to guess, I'd say somewhere between, I don't know, I, I probably have 500 to 750 feet with zero on the line counter. 500 to 750 fish with zero on the line counter. Think about that for a second. At five to five and a half mile an hour. That's the definition so, of short line trolling right there. I wouldn't mind diving into that short line trolling in another episode, honestly, because I think there's a ton of knowledge that I've seen from some of your clientele, Mike, I know that there was a time when you were talking to Greg quite a bit when Greg was living here at our place. And so I've got some of that, but I would just myself would love to learn more about that short line trolling. And I, I would love to dive into it deep. I don't know that we need to do it today, but I would like to go yeah. there. Sometime. 
you know what? Fish are the same everywhere. Muskies are muskies. I mean, they're cut from the same cloth. I mean, it's just a matter of finding out when it's going to work. But I've sent my clients to Green Bay, and you know, even Sarah. I mean, he went to Green Bay, and you know, he caught a big fifty-inch fish on a pikey with no line out in the prop wash. I mean, it works everywhere. I mean, fish, you know, muskies are muskies, and uh, you know, short line trolling is a very good way of covering water quickly and covering all your icons quickly to tell you how you're going to do your next pass. I basically spent all my time not changing lures. I just changed fish. You know how guys go to spot, spot, change lures, change lures, change lures? From 65 degrees and up, I never change lures. I just change fish. That's that's interesting. I know one of the things that you like to do, too, is you run some wire, and that kind of helps you through some of that weed stuff, too, correct? If I run one rod, it's a wire rod. If I run three rods... It's two wire rods and a braid. If I'm running four rods, it's two. The wires are the most important in my boat for controlling baits, uh, for tuning baits, and just for the way they act in the water. Now, would you run wire on a long rod too? Like, a, you know, say 50 feet or something like that away from the boat as well? Absolutely, if I have to. I mean, depending on the depth of water I'm fishing and the speed I'm going, I will. I mean, you got to remember, I'm using the wire more to control my spread. So I'm not, you know, catching my line. I don't use boards here in the summer. I don't use, I'll use boards on two-story fisheries, Georgian Bay, uh, Lake Ontario, the mouth of Lake Ontario. You can't use boards here effectively in the current at high speed. I mean, with all the floating weeds and stuff, it just doesn't work and all that. I mean, all my board fishing is left for, you know, two-story fisheries, you know, places with no current, Georgian Bay, Nip and stuff like that. Other than that, I'm not running any boards at all. Don't get me wrong. I love running boards. I love running a, I love putting my lines in a rod holder and letting them go for like an hour so the line counter goes off, but I never get to do that. And my lines are never more in the water than, you know, a minute or two. Because I'm, like I said, I'm not changing lures. I'm changing spots. I was just going to say, Mike, you talked about two-story fisheries. You mentioned that twice. What, for the yeah. people that don't know, what's a two-story fishery? You know, kind of like lake trout water, you know, trout water where you have muskies and trout water, kind of like uh, part of Eagle is a two-story fishery. Georgian Bay is a two-story fishery. I mean, the St. Lawrence is not a two-story fishery. The Ottawa River is not a two-story fishery. These are single-story fisheries. Does that make sense? Did I clear that up for you? Yes. Yep. I know there's a bunch okay. of people out there that are probably thinking to themselves, what the heck's he talking about? I just wanted that clarified. Here. Another thing also with my trolling also, I mean, I've, I've, had, a, I've had a kicker on my boat for 20 years and I usually keep a boat for three years and usually when I sell the boat there's no more than seven or eight hours on my kicker I only troll with the big motor I'm a throttle troller my boat is never going the same speed for more than 10 or 15 seconds I'm my hand is always on the throttle I am controlling my lures whether I be in current areas you know because I mean if you don't control your lures and you got big spread lures float up and down and also, I never let my fish be the same speed for more than 10 or 15 seconds. I've always been a throttle troller. It's always worked for me. People that have fished with me for the first time, you know, even guys who are in the industry, they're like, oh my God, how do you even do that? But if you think about it, I mean, if you have the boat at one speed all the time, I mean, it's not really an extension of your body. I'm really feeling with the throttle. I mean, you know, if I keep my right elbow on my railing and use my right wrist to control the throttle, I can feel the torque on my rod and here are the other down easters. I know what my lures are doing, and I can control, you know, the slow up speed down, slow up speed down by basically using the throttle. Wow, that's impressive. Mike? Yeah? How about, like, 
Yeah, are you into like the big baits, small baits? Like you know, here, like Brad prefers big baits. For him to run a bait under ten inches is kind of a rarity. Um, how or like I can't not ask this. How about trolling blades? Any of that stuff? Do you have any preferences on that stuff, or not at all on that stuff? Well, if the question is size, I mean, I love all baits. I mean, I love. Look, I have a bite that happens for 10 days in two different places that is a headlock bite. And that's the only headlock bite I have. I don't have a headlock bite anywhere else. But I mean, I also do like to use plows. I do like to use these baits that I make myself. I mean, people have called them trains, but I mean, they're like three quick fish tied together or three flat fish tied together. They move like crazy and go real slow. I love big baits. I love pounders. I love double tens. I love your super model. I mean, you're also, you know, talking to a guy who's caught more than 150, 50 inches on an eight-inch depth rater. Some of my heaviest fish ever are on an eight-inch depth rater. I mean, it's more controlling your bait to what you have to get done to get that fish to go. So, I mean, do I love four-inch baits? No. Do I love six-inch baits? Not really. Do I love eight-inch baits? I love eight-inch baits. I love headlocks. I love 10-inch believers. I love perch baits. More important is, I mean, you got to know what your baits are doing. Uh, a more a more appropriate way of putting this would be wood versus plastic. Uh, and understand, like I, I heard uh, Brad talk about believers the other day, how he loved his believer casting a little bit. It, you know, he'd use it because it was different. He'd love the rattle. I love believers. I would never use a believer ever unless I drilled three holes on one side and one on the other and filled it up with monofoam, got rid of the rattles and got rid of the chambers. I need my baits to be consistent. I mean... I, I don't like chambers. I, I need every one of my baits to do the same thing. So I have a problem with wood, but I love using wood baits in high speed and warm water, like Wiley's and, you know, I can name a whole bunch of other ones that I love too. I mean, just one, even like take, for instance, the headlock. I mean, I have a great headlock bike, but I have to get 20 headlocks to make three that I'm going to run all the time because if they're not doing the same thing, I'm not in the game. So, I mean, it's more the understanding of, plastic versus wood for speed and temperature of your water. There is no application for wood in 45 to 30 degree water temp. Don't get me wrong. There are guys catching fish on wood in 45 to 30 degree water temp, but try it at one mile an hour with inside turns and outside turns with buoyancy and all that. It just doesn't work. You're going to be tangled. You're going to be confused and you're never going to know where you are. You talk about guys now on their electronics looking at their pan optics, for the first time realizing their baits really weren't where they were, I believe them. I know where my stuff is all the time, and I know the things that tear apart my pattern. That's knowing what your baits are doing. So, I mean, there's, look, uh, plastic injection. What would you call Boyer's bait? You know the perch bait? What is that, foam or whatever? Yep. Yeah. I can't think I, of what kind of foam, but yeah. I mean, that was probably the greatest introduction to musky fishing. When Brian built those in the 90s, I probably got some of the first prototypes. And I know all those guys, Howard Wagner, Mintier, all great guys, good anglers. Some of these guys were the pioneering guys, the guys that, you know, when you went to the middle of nowhere that you never think you were going to see anybody 700 miles away, they'd be coming around the corner with four rods in the water. I mean, these guys are hardcore. And I mean, those baits, plastic injection without chambers or foam or whatever, I mean, they have a great musky fishing. I mean, for all around. But don't get me wrong, the wood does too. Just I don't like wood at anything less than 50 degrees. Any, uh, anything less than 50 degrees, wood's out of my game. 
it's just too inconsistent. None of them are the same. I mean, lip angles, buoyancy, you know, they absorb water, don't absorb water. I mean, I, I like to really be in control of my things. There's two questions that I have for you. One would be, what are you using for a foam to fill some of those cavities? And then two, how are you, yeah. how are you making sure you know where your baits are? I mean, I have some methods that I do. I mean, I, I've got access to like uh, sandbars and different bodies of water, and I'll just crash my baits and actually figure it out where they're actually at in the water. How are you doing that? Yeah. Well, basically exactly what you said. I mean, just years and years of trial and error on sand flats or rock flats or where they touch first speeds. And don't forget, it's a little bit tougher for me because in 70% of my situation, I have to factor in current. And upstream and downstream are two different animals. In fact, they can make one lure be two different lures, the difference between going upstream and downstream. And as for the believer, I mean, you just drill three holes on one side, one in the other, shoot in a can of monofoam, let it dry, shave it off, and put a little epoxy on it, and then boom, every believer you have is doing the same thing, and you'll never get water in it again. I was going to say, are you doing that with every hollow bait then? I mean, not just a believer. I'm talking any kind of hollow plastic bait. Are you filling them all? I don't really think any other hollow plastic bait fits the same criteria as a believer. You talk about like a depth rater, you mean? I was thinking depth like rater. Like a depth rater. Whatever. Depth rater, once I, like if you run a depth rater at five mile an hour for a day and a half, the hooks go right through and you got water in it, then I'll fill them up and J.D. Weldon. You know, but I mean, I don't, I'm not a big fan of rattles because, I mean, you mentioned you like the rattles and your believer when you're casting, but I mean, if you take a believer and toss it in a swing pool with, you know, big split rings and a seven-odd hook, it probably makes more noise than your rattles do, you know what I'm saying? So you can get rid of the chambers and still have the noise factor happening too. Totally get it. All right, so Mike, I heard you talk about foam filling baits and all all different stuff and how you said that uh, you prefer actually plastic baits over wood baits, especially during water temperatures that are below 50 degrees. So if there was two plastic baits that guys had to have in their tackle boxes, which one would they be or which ones would they be? Okay. We're going to have to keep in mind right away that there's a big confidence issue in here. So, I mean, basically I'm going to stick with the old adage, stick with what you're confident in. But if you're asking me what, where I go nowhere, there isn't anywhere I haven't been where they won't eat a perch bait and a depth raider or a Jake. The one thing I'm, you know, circle back on the perch bait is how weird that is as a staple out in the east guys out east love them obviously brian is from you know he's from over that way but we carry them and every time i sell them you know there's a few here and there but there's not you know they're an eight inch bait and the plow is even a bigger bait we don't sell that many to minnesota or wisconsin it's just really weird how that has such a following over the east in you know it shows up it's not the following it's not the following at all it's the confidence my clients have gone to kincaid and caught 48, 49-inch fish on perch baits and depth raters. My clients have gone to Minnesota and caught big fish on perch baits and depth raters. They even caught big fish on these baits that I make myself, these these trains that are three lures with their heads cut off connected together. I mean, it's a confidence thing there. You know, but I mean, you you can't tell. Sometimes you got to come outside the box and show the fish something they've never... I give up my next 25, 50-inchers or one new spot, or the next hot lure. Because, I mean, you say to yourself, Brad, I've heard you say this, and I hear guys say this. I mean, I'm learning every day I go on the water. I mean, I, you know, my learning curve is very, very small. I, I trade, you wouldn't believe the trades I'd make for one more spot. 
or one more hot lure. I mean, I'm not saying I know everything, because just when you think you realize everything, you're going to realize how little you know, because, I mean, Muskie's always had the way of, you know, giving it to you, but I mean, my learning curve is real small. And I'm sure, you know, you take a guy who's intimate with his water, uh, an apex guide like Quintana or even Hammernick and all, you know, they're always just longing for one more bite or one more trick. And I mean, our learning curve isn't as big as you think it is. I mean, I, I will never go explore. The days of pioneering going 400 miles, 300 miles. I mean, everybody's got to have a chance in life to fish a virgin fishery that's never been fished before, but I'm done. I'm not, I'm not running anymore. I've been doing it 30 years. I'm going to ride out the next 10 or 15 doing what I love to do so I can steelhead fish and Atlantic salmon fish and tarpon fish and bone fish in my free time and all that. But I mean, that's pretty much what it is. I mean, the learning curve is a lot smaller than you think. I, I get excited when I hear guys say, you know, I learned something new. I mean, it seems like when I learn something new right now, it's not from a musky guy or, you know, and it's usually some guy that's not a very good fisherman. Or, and I, I mean, those instances are so small. Does that make sense to you guys? It does. It's intriguing to hear you say that, Mike, for sure. I, I look, I'm just thinking that I learned different things in the aspect of, like, I'm dealing right now with this, uh, the clearer water that I've ever seen before. I mean, it, it's insane. My body's water have always been clean, but this whole issue with um, <laughs> zebra, zebra mussels, I'm sorry. I just totally gapped there for a second. The issue with zebra mussels, it just it's really kind of changed my game and I'm, I'm learning something different where how these fish are actually positioning throughout the day, high sunlight yeah. and things like that, of that nature. And I don't know, I, I just feel like it's so incredible to be able to start putting a, another piece to the puzzle together, I guess is where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, I understand you 100%. I lived through the zebra night, zebra muscle nightmare. I lived through the Gobi nightmare. I lived through the, uh, high water level years, low water level year nightmare. I l lived through the erosion nightmare. I have bodies of water where, I mean, the whole the whole ecosystem changed because of gobies. The whole ecosystem changed because of erosion. I mean, you know, but because of the fact that I'm fortunate enough to be on the water, you know, six days a week, all year long. I mean, I just stay in tune. And like you said, you're learning and you catch up to it. I mean, I'm forced into it through attrition. Just like the guys who lost their weeds to rusty crayfish or stuff like that. I mean, that's part of, you know, look, if you're going to go out there and do the same thing three days in a row and catch nothing and go and do it fourth day again, you may as well shoot yourself. I mean, in that fact, like you're saying, in that fact, like you're saying learning, I mean, okay, maybe I'm still learning, but I mean, I know not to get caught in those rocks. I mean, our fisheries are ever changing. Hey, I'm dealing with fisheries that have collapsed 70%. I'm dealing with fisheries right now that had a zero recruitment. I'm dealing with a couple of fisheries that will never have another muskie again. I mean, in the wild, people don't realize it's wild fish. Mother Nature takes care of them. Mother Nature doesn't take care of soft fish. I mean, nothing kills wild fish. I mean, they will always survive. The only thing that can kill them is invasive species or crazy water, you know, water level changes or chemicals. I mean, you know, where wild fish live is a wonderful thing. I mean, a 50-pound fish and a 5-pound muskie will be on the same spot. But they will always, I believe that Lake of the Woods and Eagle and these lakes in Minnesota, not Minnesota, in Wisconsin, I believe your lake 70 and 80 years ago had 40, 50 pounders because they were wild fish. They were never caught. They lived an adult life. Of, I believe you had fish in Wisconsin. I know it's all messed up now with your genetics and stuff like that. But I believe if you let nobody on Lake of the Woods right now for 50 years, 
in 50 years when you went back there, those 53s, 54s, 55s would be 25 and 26 inch girths in July. And I believe the same thing for Wisconsin if they were still the wild fish because where wild fish live is a wonderful thing. And it happens all across the board for all species. I mean, steelhead, I mean, where wild steelheads live, they're protected unless man gets in their way. However, you go to places where, you know, where steelhead are soft, they all do the same thing at the same time. They all run the river at the same time. They all, you know, get wiped out by the disease at the same time. They all show up at a dam at the same time because we've, we've altered their life. But I mean, if you let a fish live wildly and never mess with it, it's going to survive forever. Does that yeah, make that's, sense that's, to you guys? It, it does, Mike. And I, I think that's really an interesting topic. That's for sure. I'm just sitting here pondering on it a little bit. I, I, I find it intriguing. You know, I, I'd love to be called out on a lot of the way I think about things and all that, but I mean, you know, I've worked on four different tagging studies that have involved thousands of fish. I've worked on two different tracking studies that involved 30 fish that were tracked by plane, boat, snowmobile, all the time for three years in a shot. I mean, I have my recaptures. I have other guys' recaptures. I know what the fish did and, you know, I know how to compare my stock fisheries to the way the fisheries that I fished that were wild, like Georgian Bay and Nip and my native fisheries here before the homogeneous mixture started with the stocking. Because, I mean, part of our tagging was uh, genetics. And some of the areas, it's a full homogeneous mixture now, but there are some areas where the native and the stock fish never mixed. And, I mean, I see how these fish act and survive, and I don't make that the fish told me that. So... You know, it all comes into play. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, I think it'll be easy to pick up where we, where we go with another episode. We go with uh, tracking studies, and we go with short line trolling, and we'll have another two hours gone by. I can I can see it already. <laughs> I have uh, I have two regrets in my career, and one of them is probably missing out on Minnesota. But, I mean, I just, like I said, I wasn't so arrogant to think I was going to go there and outfish, you know, the Bensons and the Loops and the, and the Hammernicks and the Tarkins. And I mean, at one point, the Thomases. I mean, you guys were 30 guys on a lake at one point. I, I wasn't so arrogant to think I was going to go there and outfish you, even though my guys wanted to. And the other thing, uh, the one big mistake was the first time somebody put a cowgirl on my boat, I said, that stupid looking thing will never catch a fish. And I caught one in five minutes. And this is after, in the early years, I used that Moore's bucktail that had a number 13 blade on it. Do you remember that bucktail, Brad? I don't. What, what, who one, made it? There was one bucktail with the number 13 blade on it, and I used to catch big fish on it. But when somebody showed up with a stupid-looking pencil thing with two number 10s on it, I said, that ain't going to catch my fish, and I don't think it took five cats in the car fish. <laughs> well, you know, it was an amazing trip with that whole bait, and it's still catching fish today. Um, one of the neat I gotta, things I, I would say is that I heard that many, many times, Mike. I remember the first show that we went to, it was at Chicago. We were in the Thorn Brothers booth and, and we're standing there and we got made fun of by about 50% of the crowd. Oh, you got Christmas tree ornaments. If you were to walk around a show right now, man, things have really changed, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know what? I regret not going to spend, you know, a week in your pole barn and whenever it was 2002 or my guys were there the guides that i know that were there some guys who i fish with i mean i really wanted to but i mean it can't be in two places at once and your story too brad what a great story i mean i mean and i know it's all carrie and not you that's what makes it even better 
<laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I what? Play, I mean, what? Is, I got to play on the water, and then I came home to a list every day, and my assignments from Carrie, basically. But you know, she's the one that really deserves all the credit. She's the one that came up with the whole concept, and yeah, I had a little bit of input here and there, but ultimately, she's the designer. Right. We know when they say we know when people say to you, "Who's your daddy?" You say Carrie. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel now that you're guiding again? I mean, are you happy to be guiding? I mean, I know you took a whole bunch of years off. Are you in I love do. with guiding? I, I do like guiding. I always have. Um, you know, from guiding out west for big game animals to to the musky game, and you know, I took a break, and I I needed that break actually. I took the break when we had our daughter, and I'm kind of all back in. I mean, I I just it's a passion of mine as well, Mike, for some of the same reasons that you have the passion. And it's really neat that uh, I called some of my old clients and guess what? My, my date book filled up pretty fast and we uh, we've kind of reunited. So it's been a really cool thing. Good for you. I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, it's, it's a passion for sure, but remember it's a prison sentence too. Eh? I That's mean, I sure. look back on it. I think that, I think the last time I checked was probably for a presentation I did three or four years ago. And I think I had done like 4,200 uh, paid guide days in my career at that point. And I remember doing the math, dividing it by 365. I think it was like 12 years of like straight musky fishing. I mean, it's a passion, but I mean, it's taxing and you really got to manage your family and your life. And it's quite something. We're very fortunate. Hands down, Mike, you're right about that. I mean, I, I can tell you examples, you know, one of the things that I missed out on because of guiding is funerals, weddings, you know, so on and so forth, because that was where I put my time, you know, my time was in a boat. And so it's been good to have a little bit of break and I'm kind of doing what you're doing, you know, that six days a week or five days a week. And I'm, I'm trying to manage what that looks like for my family. And like yourself, I'm very sorry for every funeral I missed and every wedding and every bar mitzvah and every birthday. And I mean, you know, we look back now and we kind of wish maybe we didn't do it and all that, but that's the way it all plays out. eh? It's who we are, Mike. I mean, it, it, it's definitely a unique individual that chooses this game. That's for sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of great guys out there. I have a lot of respect for, you know what? I, I listen to all your podcasts. I don't know a lot of the guys, but I mean, that guy Hanson on the Madison chain and Mantai and Luke. And I mean, you take a look at a guy like Goldberg who's totally different than all those guys over there. Who's kind of like at the end of the pioneering game, but still pushes the envelope. I mean, there's so many interesting guys out there and there's so many guys out there that just get it. You know what I'm saying? And you know, the best part of musky fishing is, you know, it's not, I mean, the big fish is great. I mean, it's great that, you know, the two best things in your life are your personal best and your world record. But I mean, just talking with guys who get it, and, you know, sharing, you know, instances and listening to guys talk who get it. I mean, it gives you validation and, you know, it lets you know that you did what you wanted to do. Yeah, I would totally agree with that concept. All right, Mike, we really appreciate you coming out and spending some time with us. I know I love it when we have guests that open up my eyes to the way I fished. And I think hopefully everyone else got that out of this too, but I definitely did what I mean, just, just, uh, a, a new approach, a different set of eyes, 
you know, your, your message about consistency and repeatability came, came through. And, you know, quite honestly, I, I don't know that there's too many more guys that are more passionate about musky fishing than you. So we just want to thank you for coming out. Hopefully in the future we can make something work out and we can hook up again. And there's a certain, there's a couple other topics that I have listed here that we'd love to, that we'd love to talk to you about. So Mike, thanks a lot for coming out. We really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. It was a great time. Thanks to you and Brad. And uh, thanks for putting together all those great podcasts that got us through the last few months here. And, you know, we certainly appreciate the kind words that you had about the podcast. And we really appreciate you listening. As we appreciate all of our listeners, we can't truly thank all of you enough for listening to this podcast. And, you know, hopefully we were able to, you know, in the last, you know, month or so, we were able to give people uh, something to look forward to on a Wednesday that takes their mind away from all the other stuff that's going on in the world. And like I said, thanks again, Mike, we really appreciate you coming out and hopefully we can meet up again in the next, uh, you know, three, four weeks or whatever, you know, depending upon how things shake out. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care, Mike. I appreciate your time. Okay. My pleasure. Have a great day, guys. Bye, Carrie. Bye, Mike. Bye, guys.